0: Hello, and welcome to Visually Sacred. My name is Arthur Agajanian, and I'm a Christian contemplative and essayist. In this podcast, I speak with thought leaders working in the intersection of art, visual culture and religion. Thank you for joining me as we explore the rich and complex role of images in Christian history, culture, belief and practice. In this episode of Visually Sacred, my guest is Rachel Hostetter-Smith. Rachel is Gilkisson Distinguished Professor of Art History at Taylor University. She worked in book publishing for many years and was a member of the graduate faculty of the School of Comparative Arts at Ohio University prior to joining the faculty of Taylor University. She has been a visiting scholar at the American Academy in Rome on two occasions, a participant in NEH. Summer Seminars on Medieval Art in Paris and York, has been a seminar leader for artists and scholars in the U.S. and abroad, and has taught in South Africa, China, Italy, and British Columbia. Rachel is a founding director and current president of the board of the Association of Scholars of Christianity in the History of Art. The recipient of the Best Article of the Year Award from the journal Explorations in Renaissance Culture, She publishes on a wide range of topics in the arts. Rachel has served in a number of editorial capacities, including co-editing special issues of the journal Religion and the Arts on Latin American art and on Paradise in 19th century British and American art. She is project director and curator of Cheris, Boundary Crossings, Between the Shadow and the Light, and Matter and Spirit, Contemporary Chinese Art and Society for the Nagel Institute for the Study of World Christianity. Rachel is a 2009 to 2010 recipient of the Franklin W. and Joan M. Foreman Distinguished Faculty Scholar Award. Her most recent book is Religion and Contemporary Art, A Curious Accord, co-edited with Ronald R. Bernier. In this episode, Rachel and I discussed questions around the place and role of spirituality in contemporary art. We talked about her recent book on the subject and her various projects across a broad range of projects and exhibitions. We also explored how diverse artists navigate spirituality, cultural differences, and environmental consciousness through their artwork. Join us in unraveling the profound insights and cross-cultural dialogues within these creative endeavors. I hope you find inspiration in the rich tapestry of art, spirituality, and societal reflections we discussed. Rachel, thanks for joining me today on Visually Sacred. I'm looking forward to talking with you about contemporary art today and how you see spirituality and aesthetics coming together in not just the Christian West, but in cultures of the East as well. I know we're going to be covering a lot of ground, and I'm excited to hear your insights. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks so much, Arthur. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: As am I. And I'd like to start with your recent book, Religion and Contemporary Art, A Curious Accord, which delves into the intersection of spirituality and contemporary art. Based on what you learned through work on this book and the contributions it features, could you share some insights on how spirituality is being explored and expressed in today's art world and what unique challenges or opportunities it presents? I'd also be curious to know what most surprised you or if there were any particular issues that seemed to dominate in the writings that you included.
1: Yeah, well, it it may be really helpful to go back to what led to this particular book project in that it was a, a recognition by myself and the colleague That I worked with on this project that addressing spirituality in art was really pervasive and yet there wasn't any kind of overview of how things had developed you know in recent years and and decades and so one of the things that that we were looking at was all of the the work that had been done both by artists but also the increasing work by scholars by curators and museum and gallerist professionals in a a wide range of arenas. And so one of the things that we really encountered is that there's just a a wide range of approaches and strategies that people are taking to dealing with with spirituality or religion, depending on how they frame the issues in contemporary art. it might be helpful if I just respond with a few examples of some of the things that have have been produced or developing in really recent years. Um, a new couple of new books that just came out, one titled "Spiritual Moderns" by Erica Doss. 20th century American artists and religion is the topic. There's just a host of work that has been done on looking at artists from the early 20th century in particular and rethinking what they were doing or looking at work that has been previously ignored that was a part of the 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 work that they were producing another example in the arena of galleries and exhibitions we have people opening new galleries specifically focused on exhibiting artwork to explore spirituality and art, but not necessarily from within a really specific um, uh, traditional religious framework. So one example of that would be Aaron Rosen started a new gallery titled The Parsonage um, in Maine recently. Aaron Rosen also who has been a significant, Figure in recent years helped to lead a project called the Stations of the Cross, which you may have already been aware of, that has been mounted in major cities in Europe and in the United States, you know, around the globe. Those kinds of projects are being undertaken. To engage the larger public, you know, with issues of spirituality and where, again, they are not necessarily grounded in a single religious tradition, even though they may be inspired by them, such as the Stations of the Cross, reflecting the Catholic commemoration of Christ's Passion and the Stages of the Passion, and then we also see just lots and lots of developments of multifaceted endeavors and organizations such as the bridge project in los angeles that you're familiar with that mounts forums um, for engaging art sometimes historical but especially contemporary uh, because it's a part of the contemporary conversation about what it means to be human today that has, you know, reemerged in force, as well as exhibiting and engaging artists very directly with the work that they're doing. We're also seeing foundations and granting organizations that are funding projects along these lines, and again, where they are not necessarily working from a specific religious tradition, but interested in this re-emergence of concern for religion and spirituality in the contemporary world and around the globe. And so very, very recently, there was a major project that was funded by the Templeton Religious Trust on the topic spiritual understanding in a in a secular age engaging art as religious ritual and that was intended to bring together a, a large group of scholars from various parts of the globe over a period of a year or two to meet and think together share their their common knowledge with one another to really Think about why this was happening and what it represented in in the world as we experience it now. So all of these things that we were observing happening that many people were often aware of one or two of them, but not necessarily the breadth of what was happening and also the frequency of publications, exhibitions, forums that were being presented and and set up for both the general public as well as people who were more deeply invested in it seemed to really indicate that there was a need to try to provide a bit of an overview of where we've arrived over the last couple of decades.
0: And were there specific things that came through in the various contributions to the book that were news to you or which you found to be particularly intriguing about what's going on today?
1: I think one of the most interesting things that that came through what was a multi-year project of Both surveying the field, engaging a wide range of of individuals, there are thirty four contributors to the to the book. So this is no small sampling of people who are are working in this arena. Is that this is no longer alien territory? You know that in a sense it has become acceptable to engage these issues in. In arenas where 20 years ago, it would have been very difficult to do that. And so while I w- we were very, very aware of that being a reality, it was interesting to see that being confirmed as well as to get some insights into what might lie behind that. Mm-hmm. And one of those those things that is really moving into the foreground of many conversations about spirituality or religion, again, depending on which term you're, you're um, and art is the way in which there is a, a, an attentiveness to the audience or to audience response. What is it that human beings who are engaging the artwork are looking right. for or are receiving from this engagement because there seems to be a, a, a real desire for it or we wouldn't see these kinds of endeavors or the artwork being promoted, mm-hmm. forums being uh, well-attended, books being purchased, podcasts like yours being produced and then listened to. You know, with regularity. Yeah,
0: I was actually going to ask about audience reception and whether there is a strong desire on the part of the public and a really positive response to putting uh, contemporary art in the framework of spirituality that's helping to drive these various projects because would seem that if there's so much work being done in this today, that there's a need for it, that audiences are asking for it, and they're responding really well to it.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things that we do need to remember is that in in a real sense, artists have been addressing these issues throughout this period of what might feel like secularism and growing secularism through the 20th century and so the artists were always thinking about these issues but as I indicated at the beginning of our conversation a lot of the gallerists or the Theorists or the interpreters of art were ignoring those dimensions of their art. So somehow the artists recognized these as real and persistent aspects of human being that needed attention and where in some cases they were certainly expressing their own personal interests and concerns. But many of them were actually addressing broader societal kinds of issues, you know as they were pursuing art that had spiritual or religious dimensions to it.
0: Hmm. Now, to give listeners an idea about the book, as far as its structure, is divided into sections titled "Theoretical and Interpretive Frameworks," Artistic Strategies," and Case Studies of Artists and Artworks." You've got an essay by Matthew Milner who's been on our show, and you've contributed an essay titled Rogue Priests, Ritual, Sacrament, and Witness in Contemporary Art. I love that title. And I'm just wondering if you could unpack the categories and frameworks for reading spirituality and art, the way they've been organized in the book, and maybe share how the conversation around these frameworks evolved, as well as where you see us now in terms of interpreting spirituality and art.
1: Well, when Ron Bernier, my colleague for this particular project, as we were thinking about how to provide a really useful volume that would survey where we've arrived and the nature of the conversations and the artwork and then the the scholarship and criticism that is being uh, produced in response to it, is that we realized that over the last couple of decades some new frameworks for thinking about especially contemporary art that has some sort of a spiritual dimension had been formulated that hadn't really been a part of the way that people would be looking at art up until that point and so we realized that one of the things that the book should provide is some of those useful frameworks that were lenses, so to speak, that would help to highlight certain dimensions of of works of art. And so that first section, Theoretical and Interpretive Frameworks, lays out some of those approaches for thinking about art and contemporary art in particular, fruitfully, you know, for especially those who are interested in spiritual dimensions. So one one good example of that is actually the lead essay in that particular section. There are seven essays. So you're not just being given one approach, but actually seeing a wealth of people who are thinking about these approaches but the lead essay by Jonathan Anderson actually lays out what he describes as four different horizons for engaging religion or spirituality and art and the first he he refers to as anthropological. We might refer to it more generally as sociological, so social implications or ways of thinking about religion and art. The second being the political that is more about what you might call power relationships rather than politics and the way that we use the term more in everyday kinds of, of language and then the last two are where he's introducing ones that are more recent and that he actually argues are the the arenas where there is new fertile ground you know to be tilled and and then developed further and those he dubs the spiritual and the theological and You'll see in that section that there are various ways that different scholars are framing those dimensions. In a sense, a willingness now that exists to acknowledge such kinds of categories as spiritual or theological, as legitimate, again, in the, the, the mainstream of the art world and the scholarly and museological kind of world. So that first section is really important in laying out, you know, fruitful ways of thinking about art. And then the second section is titled Artistic Strategies, because one of the things that we had been observing for a long time, and as you mentioned, my individual contribution is in that particular section as well is that there were common artistic approaches that artists who were interested in spiritual dimensions of human being or life would be using and so we see titles that are dealing for example with art that has an iconic kind of dimension or that is using the concept of sacred relics, you know, from many art, many religious traditions. We have this concept of the, the the remains or things that have come into contact with a sacred personage or a sacred event. Sacramentalism um, as another kind of language sometimes being used by artists who don't ascribe to any particular religious tradition, but they're using that conception of the things being sacramental, meaning that the, the material gives us access to something that transcends that material, just as in the, the sacraments of baptism, water is the vehicle for, right. um, Uh, new life or the bread and the wine in the Eucharist um, is the vehicle. And so artists are using materials and objects in sacramental ways. Ritual as another kind of example, or bearing witness, you know, as you referred to in my particular chapter, all of those dimensions. We see a wide range of artists who are using these languages that arise out of religious tradition and practice mm-hmm. in order to add layers of meaning and frequently it is a an expressed kind of spiritual meaning and then the the last section is a large group of essays that are, are case studies of individual artworks and artists covering a really wide range of types of art representing artists from around the world in no way intended to be comprehensive, but rather to signal the breadth and extent of the kind of work that is being produced by artists, but also fruitful ways of engaging and interpreting, credible ways of interpreting
0: Those works. Do you think the contemporary art world generally is open and interested in this subject? Are they coming to the table? Is it more a matter of kind of tapping those people on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know, there is this whole conversation happening? How have you found the reception from the institutions of the contemporary art world? To be I'm really curious because Certainly, artists have been engaged in these theological issues for a long time, but there hasn't been institutional critique to discuss it in the mainstream contemporary art world. And Now, with this, all of this uh, scholarship and all of this recognition of what artists are doing in terms of exploring through their work the spiritual dimension, the question that comes up for me right away is, how are galleries and museums and curators and art critics for the major magazines responding? Are they interested in what's going on?
1: Yeah, there is is without a doubt a growing interest and openness. The very fact that the the volume that we've been talking about that just came out in May has 34 contributors. And probably only a a third to perhaps a half half of of the contributors have some sort of specific faith commitment. So what that reflects is that these are are scholars, in some cases, gallerists or or museum professionals who are recognizing that this is a significant dimension of human being, whether they personally ascribe to it Mm. or not. And we're also seeing, you know, more museums over the last decade, I would say, that are hosting shows. There was a really wonderful show that was in 2018, that's five years ago now, that I think really helped to break open some new ground, and that is... An exhibition titled Experiencing the Spiritual in Contemporary Art, and it was mounted by Lisa Fanning, and she was a curator at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. But that exhibition and the very extensive hardcover exhibition catalog with substantive essays really shifted the conversation a little bit that was already happening we had had exhibitions that would deal with for example contemporary artists who were using metaphors or images from religious traditions but to make social or political points rather than addressing addressing issues of Um, spiritual concern Mm -hmm. fairly commonly. There had been absolutely no problem with having historical, you know, kinds of, of exhibitions, you know, that would deal with issues of religious or spiritual concern. But this particular exhibition experiencing the spiritual again, emphasizes what is it that the, audience or the person who is engaging this art is looking for or receiving from that engagement. And I think that is one of the major shifts that we have been seeing is that willingness to investigate territory and to ratify its legitimacy that was previously considered too subjective to be taken seriously if that makes sense to you
0: that's how i think the interpretive frameworks are really valuable because they help give us bearings on how to begin to understand what these artists are doing
1: exactly Uh, because it also does move the, the thinking of these being purely individualized and subjective responses to there being something that is perhaps more fundamentally human that can be identified, yeah. that undergirds this upsurge in interest in this arena, and also that reflects the way in which many people who may have abandoned historically established religious traditions and practice have turned to museums to music to art to feed that spiritual side of themselves that that hole so to speak that has been left by the the move away from institutionalized religion right. by so many in recent decades and actually for the last century Yeah
0: now are there any discoveries or new perspectives in the book for the field of contemporary art scholarship that you would say sets it apart from previous works that explore this territory? Does it lay out the challenges in this area? And what does it suggest about ways forward?
1: Yeah, I think one of the most useful dimensions of the volume is actually the the, the last component of, of the book, which is a conversation that we put together with four of the major contributors to the field of scholarship and interpretation of art and religion or spirituality in recent decades and we asked them to actually respond to that that very question what are new directions where is their fruitful territory where do they see things going and one of the things was this, this serious concern for reception theory and, and consideration for really thinking seriously about the audience rather than just the distanced kind of interpretation of the work, you know, by a scholar or, or a critic. So
0: is that to say phenomenologically what's happening in the experience of receiving art?
1: Yes, exactly. And what is it that the artist who is using these religious languages, so to speak, um, uh, that I described that are outlined and explored in the second section of the book, artistic strategies, common artistic strategies, how is it that those are prompting Certain kinds of, of responses, you know, is there something again that is fundamental to ritual? Um, for example, when there is a ritualized kind of form, um, or when there is a sacramental language that is being used by the artist that touches the the audience, the the viewer in a different kind of way than if there was. A different form that was being used. For example, traditional paint on canvas that is illusionistic rather than using materials that have meaning in a sense in and of themselves that adds a layer of, of significance and connection mm. to the work. I think one of the other things that, that was identified through that process is that The concept of translation, which isn't a new one for thinking about art, but hasn't necessarily been discussed in a widespread way, except in certain circles, is another fruitful way of of thinking about uh, spirituality and contemporary art, that when the artist Chooses a particular form that it is like a language that is indecipherable by someone, something that is in the realm of concept, or God, who is spirit rather than matter, is given a material form, is thus translated into another form that is accessible to the people who encounter it. So this is something that's been discussed among especially Christian artists and Christian art critics for a long period of time using the example of the incarnation of Christ where God who is spirit takes on the form of a human being fully and completely pouring himself into that so that human beings can understand who God is, who he is better, because he's been translated using that conception there into a form that is able to be understood by the limitedness of of human beings. And so it was interesting to see this concept of translation, this describing of the concept of translation is really being picked up on by some of the scholars who again don't necessarily have a a religious affiliation themselves but saying this is actually a really effective way of understanding what is happening Mm. here that we are taking things that are unseen and we are putting them into a form that can be seen which again is a a a a very religious concept, you know, in terms of what happened.
0: Yeah. The immaterial becoming material. Yeah. Right. So that we can get a broader perspective, how would you say we got here? What do listeners need to know to understand the journey to current ideas about spirituality and contemporary art? Can you provide some historical context. What made it possible for us to arrive at this point where you're able to find that many contributors to a specialized area of discourse where entire departments in academia are discussing the intersection of religion and art. Were there some specific cultural breakthroughs? You did mention the one exhibition, but I'm just wondering if you see some sort of shift that occurred over the last couple of decades that allowed This kind of opening. You know, was there something that precipitated our current situation where now we can start to explore all these different dimensions of contemporary art in relation to the spiritual?
1: I think there there isn't necessarily something that specifically precipitated, but there precipitated this, but there is a kind of progression that has happened. And I'm going to actually use the example of the Way in which modernism from the early part of the 20th century takes up certain kinds of issues as it is thinking about the nature of, of being human is actually still committed to a kind of conception that there are universals, there are absolutes. It's just they may be found somewhere other than where we have assumed they they should uh, arise from up until that point in time. But what we basically see through the the first half of the 20th century is through the first, the, the two world wars, is this widespread perception among intellectuals and then the creative class that is, you know, very much a, a part of that Group or influenced by them, a sense that there is no truce to beauty and goodness as a result of the devastation that had occurred through the Great War that then becomes World War I, because right on the heels of it, we have a second war that is um, even more devastating, so to speak. And so for roughly 70 years, you have a period where artists and the intelligentsia, and this filters down to the general public to a degree, think that beauty is false It's an error in understanding the reality of things and that there is no foundation for understanding there being fundamental goodness in the world or in human beings. And so interestingly enough, this is a pursuit of what was perceived to be truth, to be truth by these thinkers and these artists, you know, that we have to look honestly at human beings and say, there's limited goodness in them. And look at the destruction that we have have wreaked and that we, you know, continue to wreak. And so beauty is also something that is artificial or or ignoring truth. And so one of the things that we see is that there is a, a lack of not just any kind of conventional beauty in most of what was considered modern and contemporary art, um, but even things that could be a kind of unconventional, pleasing quality to a great deal of what would be considered the most significant art that was being produced by contemporary artists with only a a, a few exceptions. All of this starts to change when we hit about the 1980s, when there are artists who start to produce works that are reflective of beauty or introducing aspects of light. And we see that museums and galleries start to take up this problem of beauty even though they haven't necessarily accepted that, that beauty has a kind of substance to it, but rather that human beings need it. This is the shift that you're seeing, is that we live for 50 years or so, 50 to 70 years if you include you know, the, the period between the, the two wars in that, where all of this is developing and we're starting to see the way in which there is a a deep seated kind of hopelessness that is um, setting in for many people, even in the kind of uh, intellectual and the artistic class. And so they start to address beauty simply saying we need beauty because it provides hope. And along with that is what else provides hope? There is this Mm -hmm. aspect of human being that simply can't live only in the material realm, you know, and that that is being recognized after a couple of generations are processing the, the experience of modernism and the world wars and its effects. And that begins to break up, that disu- that that discussion of beauty begins to break open the possibility that there is this internal, intangible dimension of human being that needs to be fed and that has a reality to it that has to be acknowledged. And we would refer to that as the spiritual. And then bit by bit those conversations begin to be able to be undertaken in circles where previously they would have been rejected Mm -hmm.
0: and is there anything going on currently that you think helps to uplift this conversation that it blows winds into the sails so to speak in terms of our cultural moments or do you think it's just the continuation of a gradual progression of, of opening up? For example, I'm thinking about the crisis with the churches, you know, where you have lower attendance and where you have a lot of people rejecting their traditional religious upbringing, but still having a need for their faith and looking for alternative ways to exercise it. And perhaps, as I think you alluded to earlier in our conversation, contemporary art or art in general provides a safe avenue for many people to engage with, as you say, these deeply human concerns without all of the apparatus of the religious institution. Do you think these things are interconnected in some way?
1: Yeah, I, I I think you can look at it from two different directions. The one is from within the church or religious traditions that especially have have not really fostered especially the visual arts. Mm-hmm. You know, they may have embraced music. Protestantism is is a good example of that. Yeah. Whereas the Orthodox and the Catholic traditions have maintained a strong visual art tradition as well but one of the things that we do see is a revitalization in those churches of considering how the arts can be employed not just in worship but in the 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 life of the congregation more generally and so we see lots and lots of opportunities for that and Seeing the arts as another avenue for truth to be known, in a sense, acknowledging the the physical aspect of human being that we respond to what is presented to us through our senses, through the eyes, through our ears in music, things that are not just being processed through words and intellectual explication so we're seeing just a flourishing of art in within religious communities and this would include jewish communities as well there are a large number of contemporary practicing jewish artists who are producing really really interesting and significant artwork that is orthodox and you know reflecting genuine tenets of of Jewish faith and not just using it for addressing political or social kinds of concerns. Mm-hmm. If we look at it coming, the question coming from the other direction of what's happening out in the larger mainstream society that especially among people who perhaps have have already abandoned Christian faith or may even be a generation or two away from it, is that they are, as I already referred to, they're they're seeking solace, enlightenment, um, being fed in a variety of ways by going to museums or galleries and exhibitions going to music concerts, going to or participating in community events that are mounted, such as the Stations of the Cross, walking the Stations of the Cross, even if they may not be practicing Christians, because there is something in that reverence Mm -hmm. and the communal pilgrimage, so to speak, that is meaningful and that they recognize is significant to human being in what has become this highly atomized you know individualized way of living especially in the united states and in in developed western societies but this is also moving into other developed societies in the non-Western world as well. So to some degree, it's something that seems to come with modernization and contemporary urban life that, that needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, just to shift here, you're the current president of ASHA, which is the acronym for Association of Scholars of Christianity in the History of Art. I'm a member myself, and um, I'm wondering if you can tell us about the organization's funding, its mission, and the important work it does in promoting scholarship related to art, spirituality, and culture.
1: Yeah, uh, ASHA was founded in in 2010, so it's a relatively young organization, and uh, it's a part of recognizing this, this need for, for religious and spiritual issues to be addressed and taken seriously mm-hmm. in arenas of scholarship in particular, where those things, as I've already mentioned a couple of times, had been largely ignored, especially when dealing with relatively contemporary art, because it was fine to say, well, religion was, was important in the past, you know, but not to us moderns now. Well,
0: you couldn't talk about religion and you couldn't talk about art from the past without talking about religion because the the two were wedded.
1: (laughs) Exactly, completely. They were entirely intertwined. And um, that's something I'm a professor, so I tell my students that all the time, that you have to understand the religious tradition if you're going to understand this art that you're looking at. But Asha was established in, in in essence in order to respond to this lacunae, you know, that had developed, especially in addressing modern and, and contemporary art, and to provide platforms for scholarship that either didn't have an outlet that was being produced or to foster new scholarship and then also to establish networking capacities for scholars who are working on these kinds of of topics. And so ASHA is not an organization for Christian scholars, but for scholars who are interested in aspects of Christianity in the history of art, which would include contemporary art. And so it really is a bridge building organization attempting to bring scholars together to engage in fruitful dialogue it was also developed because we realized the the small group of scholars who who founded asha in 2010 that academia in particular but also the mainstream Art elite circles tended to be very hostile kinds of competitive environments. And so the idea that you come together to engage in dialogue about something in order to learn from one one another rather than to stake out your turf had become a, a relatively alien concept in academia and scholarship in particular. And we really wanted to reestablish a sense of civil discourse, but more than that, hospitality. Hospitality to new ideas, fresh thinking, learning from one another, seeing one another as colleagues engaged in a a common shared enterprise rather than that kind of competitive model that has um, seeped into and pervades academia today in particular. Mm.
0: I'd like to get into some comparative religion here in the context of art and spirituality. Regarding your exploration of religious themes and spirituality in the exhibition you curated, Matter Plus Spirit, a Chinese American exhibition. Could you elaborate on the ways in which the religious life of the Chinese as portrayed in the artworks differs from that of Christians of the West and what unique cultural or societal factors contribute to these distinctions? It's a complex issue, but maybe you could share the things that you found most significant in your experience organizing that show.
1: Yeah, I've been working in in China and I I do a a great deal of intercultural work in lots of different countries. And so really thinking about what the particularities of a a place and how they developed is one of the things that I'm especially interested in. And so I've been visiting China and, and working with people there for close to 15 years at this point in time. And one of the things that I became aware of uh, fairly early on and then began to investigate and test out was the way in which in China, there was a concept that had developed that they actually have a name for um, that is the Jing Shen Kong Shu in, in Chinese, which is literally translated the spiritual void. And that this is something that not just Chinese watchers from the outside of China, but people in China were starting to acknowledge as a fundamental concern about Chinese society in in general as it had developed in the years since it had opened up following the Cultural Revolution. And China had developed not just a communist kind of form of government, but a hybrid communist capitalist kind of system that basically held out becoming wealthy and prosperous from a a material standpoint as the goal in life. And of course, socialism and communism basically sees The human person is fundamentally a material creature without a soul, without a spirit. And that if you take care of those material needs, then then society will function well and individual people will flourish. However, what had clearly been developing as China became prosperous at a rate unseen um, at any point in human history in the roughly three decades at the time that I was first going to China, following the cultural revolution and the opening up to the rest of the world, um, following Mao Zedong's death, is that there was a growing kind of emptiness Hmm. In the Chinese people and with the uh, prosperity that could only be achieved by moving from traditional life in the rural areas or the villages to these enormous cities that the same kinds of ailments that we were seeing in some sense in the in the West, but arising from a slightly different historical development uh, were, were happening there, that people were atomized. You know, they were living solely unto themselves or to their family unit, and that the pressures for finding meaning and solace beyond being on the treadmill toward prosperity was found increasingly wanting by individuals and that it was having all kinds of other negative effects in chinese society now interestingly enough with the opening up of china you also have in the 80s and then the 90s and the reopening of uh, the temples buddhist taoist confucian temples and the possibility of people being able to practice or pursue religion in some form again, that that reflected some of this this persistent awareness that there was something more to life, you know, than simply material prosperity, that it had to be subverted you know, until it was possible to actually pursue these things more openly without, without danger. So, so what we were simultaneously seeing in Chinese society as we were moving into the first decade of the 21st century was a growing crisis of, for want of a better way of putting it, the spiritual void you know, that the messages that the Chinese people were being sent, you know, through the the powers that be, that life is essentially about material prosperity and this thirst for something more coming into a kind of tension with with one another.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about, actually to go back, I was going to I wanted to ask you um, a question coming back to Asha, which had to do with the fact that you're doing a lot of bridging of art and spirituality through communities in different parts of the world. And this process of building common ground and fostering collaboration are important aspects of Asha's mission as well, as you were just explaining So I'm wondering if you can share some examples of how Asha has successfully brought together people from diverse backgrounds within the scholarly art communities or the scholarly and art communities. And then maybe we can go from that to some of the work that you've been doing in the Far East.
1: Yeah, well, Asha is really all about that fostering of of common ground, you know, for fruitful new work and understandings and relationships to be established. And so in every undertaking that we pursue, whether it's a a scholarly forum, a symposium, or a conference, or say a, a publication that might arise out of it, we're looking for partners. And And so we have partnered with a a really wide range of institutions as well as individuals to be organizers of these events and where we want to see everything that we do as a win-win situation. Again, finding that common ground and therefore, how can this be a positive thing for each of the entities that is is contributing to it, right? And so we've partnered with the Art Institute of, of Chicago as one example. PAFa in in Philadelphia, we've partnered with a couple of theological institutions, with Jewish organizations on Jewish and Christian topics where there's a kind of common ground. We have pursued topics that are on African-American art and spirituality that, again, have been mounted in conjunction with exhibits, for example, an ex- exhibition of Henry Osawa Tanner's work and a major 19th century African-American artist who was a, a Christian, but mounted in philadelphia and so whatever we're doing we're looking for that common ground we're moving to to branch out perhaps into doing a few more interface kinds of projects with with partners and in some respects the book that we've been talking about as as one of the most recent outputs you know so to speak from from Asha, includes both topics that arise out of Buddhist traditions, Jewish, indigenous, native traditions, not just here in the United States, but in, uh, in South America, Muslim traditions, and a wide range of religious traditions in addition to a full range of, of Christian Frameworks, and so we're again looking for that common ground. I think one of the thing the that, things that's important, at least to my own way of thinking about things, is that when we're dealing with something like religion, uh, the temptation is to seek common ground in such a way that waters down the authenticity or reality of important distinctions that might actually obtain, Mm -hmm. you know, between religious faiths or beliefs and finding ways of respecting those differences while still seeing the common ground of certain questions and concerns that are those big questions of human being. Why are we here? How did we get here? Where are we going? Are the things that we're trying to, to to balance? Yeah, to authentically be able to engage in vigorous and and profound discussion, especially about and through artwork, but that allows for genuine you know, differences to be recognized and respected.
0: And that's the tension, right? You're trying to hold these two things that seem to oppose each other. On the one hand, where's the universality? Where is the relatedness between these different traditions? But at the same time, acknowledging the differences, what is it that makes each unique? And being able to appreciate those within the context of that particular project it's a tricky balance but it's also an exciting one because i think it allows for discovery on the part of the people who are engaged in such in the production of such projects as well as the audience because unexpected things can arise when these different worlds collide and as you're talking about these These different traditions and and how all of these things come together in what you're seeing in the work you're doing. I'm also wondering about the indigenous traditions, the indigenous Chinese religions, for example, like Taoism and Confucianism, and how they show up in the contemporary art of China. What role? do they play? Do these religions shape the artistic response to current social and political issues in ways that are similar to what Christian artists make? Because we've been talking about how artists engage contemporary issues through faith traditions or looking at contemporary art through a theological lens. What are the similarities and differences since we're talking about that dichotomy for artists who are working in these other traditions in cultures that are very different from ours in the West, have you found anything universal? And what theological factors do you think account for the differences?
1: Well, that's that's a lot in a single question. Yeah, so yeah. maybe I'll just tackle a couple of um, dimensions of that, and we'll see where where this goes. Um, one of the things that I, I would say is that. In both the West and these Eastern traditions in China very specifically, you see many artists who may or may not have a personal faith affiliation, whatever that faith faith affiliation may or may not be, whether it's Taoism or Confucianism or Buddhism, which is while it's a, a foreign to China, it is accepted. It's been there for so long. It's accepted as Chinese in a way that Christianity, for example, and Islam are not in China, even though there are substantial minorities who identify as Muslim or as, as Christian. So you have these two different types of, of, of approaches that, that you see in both the West and in China. One is that you have artists who are using religious motifs or concepts to make political or social statements. And Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples, more concrete examples for one would be Wang Ching-sung in a work titled Bequeathing Buddha. And it's basically a, figure of the seated figure of the Buddha with many different hands holding all kinds of material objects of various sorts, including something as contemporary to China as a bottle of wine in one hand. And so here we see this artist who is making a statement using the tension that resides between Buddhism, which calls for the casting off of the material the attachment to the material world holding in its hands all of these material goods or benefits or desires you know that are being presented to us in in modern modern china and so in that kind of instance the artist is you know making a social and a political kind of statement or at least posing a question about the tension between these things the the material versus the the spiritual mm-hmm. we also see christian artists interestingly enough in china who are making statements about the social and po- political realities sometimes at great risk or cost to their their own well-being one example would be an artist whose name I won't won't present at this this moment but who created a performance piece where he enlisted a troupe of traditional Chinese musical performers who were blind and their their blind and thus, this is the kind of work they can do. They can still sing and play musical instruments, you know, and so the whole troupe is a group of blind musicians, essentially. And they are basically singing a song that is reciting the UN-United Nations Declaration of Universal Human Rights, the text of that document. And again, that is a, a very intriguing and powerful and profound kind of critique of what is going on in Chinese society as the artist sees it. And from that artist's standpoint, you know, he would be seeing from his Christian face, the prophetic kind of revealing of the, the truth of the tensions of these human rights that all people are supposed to have, and yet the reality, and then using the blind musicians who are singing this to pose the question of who is actually blind, you know, in this instance. So we see really, really interesting work. On the other hand, we also see artists who are expressing their their genuine and and very clear adherence to particular religious traditions. Now the challenge for someone who is not say a Christian or a Muslim in China is that traditionally and even to this to this day, it is very, very possible for someone to be Taoist, Buddhist, Buddhist, and Confucian, which is technically a, a philosophy, but functions to a very large degree and has functioned very much as a, a kind of religion in China, to be practicing all three of those simultaneously. And so there isn't necessarily an exclusive adherence. There's much more li- likely to be an exclusive adherence to Islam or to Christian Christianity for those who identify themselves mm. as, as Muslims or as Christians. So there is this kind of fluidity, in a sense, in the one arena that is a little bit different from what you would find for Chinese people who are Muslims or are practicing identifying Christians.
0: Do you think, though, that contemporary artists in places like China who adhere to a different religion are engaged in contemporary art in ways that are similar to what in ways that are similar to how Christian artists in the west are bringing out the spiritual dimension in contemporary art or is there a different paradigm you think they're operating on have you noticed sort of that's what i mean by the universality are there certain types of modes for example if we were to take the frameworks from your book could we apply those to non-christian artists who are practicing in their own lives Taoism, confucianism or buddhism or is it not possible for them to engage with contemporary art in ways that christians do either because of the nature of the religions or because of the cultural contexts?
1: Yeah, I'd say increasingly it was more possible even 10 years ago for artists in, in China who had any authentic religious adherence to express the authenticity of their faith more openly, that has been become increasingly problematic, not just for Christian artists but but for for other artists and and simply other adherents of those those religions. There's been a, a closing of uh, for example, Buddhist temples and fellowship groups that actually exist in certain Buddhist communities for the lay person, you know, to participate in Mm. uh, because they were becoming those, those temples and their congregations, you know, so to speak were becoming too deeply invested in their faith. And it was beginning to be seen as competing with their allegiance to the the communist the Chinese Communist Party, mm. so things in China are always shifting and they can shift very, very fast in that context. And when we look at Chinese Christian artists and this is represented by the artists who are uh, presented in the the Matter and Spirit exhibition that that you mentioned that I curated and has been traveling for several years is that there tend to be two different approaches among christian artists and they loosely reflect the way in which chinese chinese christians generally think about how they're called to live out their faith you know this is obviously a vast oversimplification but it's a useful kind of foundational understanding. There are those who feel called to what you might call a, a prophetic stance within their society. That means stand up, call out the wrongs or the ills that you see in society or in the political system, just as the Old Testament and Jewish prophets you know, did, in the hope that it will wake you know, some people up and perhaps bring about change. And then there are those who feel strongly that they should try to work within the system to be salt and light, to try to open up ground from within Chinese society and institutions of power and influence like the universities or even the political system through business and the cultural institutions, if they can move into those arenas and maintain their positions, which is, you know, where things get tricky, depending on how overt someone someone is yeah so there are these two kind of dominant strains that you see and in this exhibition we see artists who fit in both groups Mm. you know those who who feel strongly called to that prophetic stance and they are risk takers and many have paid a, a variety of 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 prices you know for for those risks that they've taken And then there are those who have had significant influence by working within the institutions of Chinese society. And this is what's so interesting for me as an outsider to Chinese society is being able to observe and see the very real effects that each of these groups are having and the sense in which, you know, we need both mm-hmm. We need people who are called, you know, in a sense, to be the the throwers, you know that that call out the things that need to be recognized, and then we also need people who quietly work away at trying to change things from within, you know and often gain more ground than we think they Mm. might because they're working quietly, you know, within the system, Mm -hmm. in the background, so to speak. And so I see that as actually a, a really profound realization for me to observe as seeing not the only two ways of operating in living out your faith and then producing art or other kinds of contributions to, to, to culture that people of, of genuine faith in, in the West can be pursuing and the legitimacy and significance that there is to both of those things. So while there are some distinctions, without a doubt, what I would say is that we see both of those things in Western artists who are Christians, some who choose not to be very overt Mm. about their faith, but their work is infused with Christ like thinking or theological rootedness and others that are either addressing social or political issues or are much more overt about their position as persons of faith but just as we see with the the Jewish Old Testament prophets their message was often rejected you know by the very people who they were sent to try to to wake up, yeah. you know, to to their message, and so that's that's the other part of of understanding those those two different approaches is that in a sense, if if you're called to be that prophetic voice, if you feel that that is you know where you're being led, you need to be prepared to be rejected. Mm-hmm perhaps reviled. But that doesn't mean that there may not be long-term seeds that are being planted, you know, that will begin to sprout or will have some sort of effect.
0: Yeah. Now, in another one of your projects, the Art for Change International Artist Residency, on the theme, The Nature of Difference, artists from diverse backgrounds gathered in the Himalayan foothills to explore the complexities of nature, human society, and the environment. Can you share how the residency encouraged artists to engage with nature as a teacher and how this unique setting fostered a deeper understanding of the relationship between art, environmental stewardship, and human existence? I'm wondering if you found that religious background influenced how people were interacting with nature in obvious ways.
1: Yeah, this um, this is actually the most recent of a number of residencies that I've helped to lead for Art for Change, which is a grassroots organization in India that has been operating for maybe a little over a decade since it was founded, and this particular residency was very, very intentionally as diverse in the selection of the participants on virtually every level as we we thought we could bring together effectively, very much again from the standpoint of seeing how we could foster, identify and foster common ground and bring people together. And I think one of the things that maybe I haven't stated yet in this conversation is that one of the unique things about both artists and artwork is this this capacity for what artists produce the artwork itself to provide a kind of medium a safe space you might call it for engaging in difficult conversations about things because the conversation between the audience and the artist or various members of, of people who would come to to look at the art they're they're looking at it through this this neutral you know thing that may actually be making a fairly strong statement Mm -hmm. one way or another about something. And yet it provides a capacity to engage in what might be very difficult or sensitive conversations because you're talking about the artwork.
0: Yeah. So the, it's like the artwork becomes a medium for the conversation or the coming together. Yeah. And the occasion also for the coming together. Well, in Uh, gallery context it can be the occasion for coming together but in the workshops you've set up you're actually making collaboration happen through production
1: exactly so in these residencies which is bringing artists together to engage with issues and then produce work sometimes in direct collaboration or just alongside each other but through that relationship they begin to influence each other or there's a cross-pollination of artistic ideas as well as concepts and understandings and so in this particular group we were we had again a a tremendously diverse group from quite a number of countries including uh, not just uh Seven or eight different states in uh, India. So all the way from the tip of India to the far eastern portion on the other side of Bangladesh to the far western provinces and as far north as Kashmir. And so hugely diverse ethnic backgrounds and, and social and religious backgrounds. There were Hindus, six. Muslims, Buddhists, then also Jewish and Christian participants, including a couple of Indian Christians. There were people from India, South Africa, Germany, England, who were participants. As just you know, uh, an example, but they were all very interested in this this question of the relationship between human beings and our natural environment right um and the way in which we affect each other mm-hmm. influence and shape our environment our, our environment shapes the way that human beings develop a way of life and certain kinds of values in that play that space and what that means for the future, where these kinds of ecological issues and sustainability issues are so significant. I was just hearing on a a report earlier today that Delhi, for example, has a pollution level that is 10 times the limit of what the World Health Organization designates as should be permitted for people to live healthfully, you know, in uh, their environment. And so these kinds of questions are huge in India. India has surpassed China in terms of having the most polluted cities and, and air on the planet. And so as we spent time in the foothills of the Himalayas, the foothills are 7,000 feet, you know, but those are, that's pretty low terrain up there. We were really engaging with the natural ecosystems and the way human beings had lived there in traditional societies and how modernization and the explosion of the population and then the movement of populations into these parts of the world, like the Himalayas, that are not very hospitable to human life flourishing. They're beautiful, so they have become Retreats and tourist sites, you know, in our time. But traditionally, they could only support very, very small populations that left a modest footprint because agriculture can't thrive in those areas, Mm. as, you know, one basic kind of example. And so we were really engaging with these rapid changes that have been happening in that space. And then not just thinking about India, but, you know, applications to each person's context around the world or in their, their, their specific home. And one of the things that was, was significant about this, we met with many different experts, in um, nature and ecology, in you know traditional cultures in the region, in the religious life, you know, really trying to explore a whole range of issues that have to do with you know human beings, you know, living meaningfully in in their in their world, in order to engage. Where are we headed, and how do we respond to the crises of our of our time? And as is often the case with endeavors like this, you know, we left with more questions than answers. But interestingly enough, in our cohort, we had a number of artists who had already been actively trying to bring together these issues and developing an art practice that specifically tried to address both the practical issues of the the natural world that we live in and how we are impacting it and how their art then feeds both intellectual and social and spiritual dimensions you know of of human being that you can't abandon one for the other, Mm -hmm. or you end up with the problem that I was just describing uh, in China of the jing shen kong shu, the spiritual void that develops. If you simply try to address the material realities and don't address the, the spiritual dimension of human being. So I'll, I'll kind of, leave you with with a a couple of examples of what what arose through very very rich discussions and debate and people bringing lots of significant aspects of individual experience from their their histories and own context whether it was South Africa or Germany or Kashmir Where one artist, his name is Manvir Singh, he has developed an art practice where he takes plastic waste and very, very specifically the kind of plastic waste that is everywhere in the world from the way in which we've developed products for convenience snack individual snack packs for per chips and cookies and drink boxes and things like that mm. and where these are everywhere in india as well and they're part of the the making small privileges and benefits available to a population whether you are the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich. So there's a way in which that is providing a kind of democratization, Mm. you know, in a highly stratified society that you have there. But the way in which all of this, this waste is just destroying their environment and where you see the waste literally rolling down the mountainside no matter how high in the elevation you go you will see this waste everywhere and so he collects that he engages in all kinds of educational programs with the people that help him to collect you know this kind of waste that he then makes into works of art and an example of a recent project that he undertook for the one of the nature preserves that is in in the Himalayas there is he made these these really amazing tiger creatures out of all of this plastic waste and so there's again this kind of tension within that work of the tiger which is an endangered species species and being made of the material that is partially endangering it mm-hmm. you know in terms of altering the environment that it's living in and the encroachment of human beings more and more into the wilderness but where we're also seeing back to Much, much earlier in our conversation, this sacramental dimension Mm -hmm. to his art practice, where the material has meaning and it has a transcendent meaning, that if he were simply making sculptures out of plaster of these tigers, it wouldn't have the same power as the fact that he has made them out of these pieces of plastic waste, you know, put together and so that there is a, a a kind of profound and vibrant presence of the 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 problem, mm-hmm. so to speak, in the work itself, not just in the image right. that that he's created. If that makes sense. Well,
0: the way the, when you're describing what the artist was doing, it occurs to me that. The different types of religious backgrounds of the participants most likely would have melded together into the more universal concern with human relationship to the environment, which factors into every religious tradition in one way or another. So do you think that there was, or did you notice any type of specific religious traditions inflection in what any of these artists were doing? Or did it all sort of melt into this general universal concern for the environment and our place in it? Was there space in that project for um, accents of Buddhism, accents of Taoism, accents of Judaism?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There was um, there was space for that, and um, in the the conversations that we would fairly regularly have, you know, interspersed by meetings with various experts and studio time and walks in nature, where we were being introduced to you know various kinds of plants and animals and some of the things that were happening, and also questions then being raised about the well where do people fit in this you know because yes we know that that human beings are in, uh, in a sense creating some of these problems but you can't simply say well human beings have no place you know in 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 this environment or in in the world that that's the solution to what we're facing and it was through those kinds of things that we began to see some of those issues of individual background and religious face where people felt comfortable to speak in that kind of manner about the, the things we were encountering coming up. So for example, we, we spent a lot of time uh, discussing the significance of trees and mm-hmm trees in an, in an ecosystem, the particularity of certain tree species, you know, in the, the Himalaya, how those things were changing. And that led to the way in which most religious traditions, and this would include many indigenous traditions, not just the historical religions of the main, major historical traditions of, of of the world have trees as an important part of their their mythology mm-hmm. the way they describe meaning and their origins or in many cases even where things are are headed and so we were able to really see how different species of trees and then the symbolism you know that is attached in the religious tradition gave rise to a particular way of thinking about the human person's relationship to the natural environment. And I think one of the things that was really interesting is that while we had a number of artists who you might even call uh, them naturalists to an extent, botanical illustrator as one, one example, that, no one concluded, you know, that that the the solution was simply to leave nature to itself, you know, because of the recognition that human beings are a part of nature, you know, we're a part of mm-hmm. the this world, and that a, a different way of thinking about that was really necessary a lot of environmentalists propose in in certain instances you know that human beings need to vacate you know Mm -hmm. certain parts of of the world and and yet you know that that if it were applied widely would seem like there's not a place for human beings instead you know this recognition that we've got to, to to figure out what an appropriate balance is for living well within nature. Interestingly enough, one of the the experts that we met with made a claim that that startled a lot of people, but makes perfect sense. And he, essentially, what he said is he said things have always been changing in the world and they always will in the natural world the perception that we can we can freeze things mm. prevent change is not understanding what would happen even if human beings weren't here and that was a really you know interesting uh, flame, so to speak, you know, to be thrown into the conversation because it, it sounded so contrary to a lot of what is, is presented by at least some members of environmentalist organizations. And that is that the goal should be, freezing or fixing things in time, but time will, will simply bring about ongoing change on this planet. And where that is especially evident in the Himalayas, something that we don't often recognize is that the Himalayas are one of the youngest mountain ranges in the, in the world. They're not volcanic mountains they are you know a result of plates that are moving against each other and so they are slowly but inexorably and measurably becoming taller Mm. over time that's something we cannot change and that means that change is is happening um whether we want to acknowledge it or not and so as human beings we have to find how we respond more effectively to what we are able to to affect as well i think the the last thing that i'd want to kind of add regarding that project is that again artists are not generally in the the business of giving nice neat answers That's to true. to questions in a sense, that's that's not really the role of art. It's to open up to view and then consideration and contemplation, things that individuals and society need to grapple with, and perhaps to bring to light things that would otherwise not be recognized or seen as readily mm-hmm. by individuals or by a society and and so the goal of the the residency wasn't to solve these issues but rather to see the complexity of them and to begin to contemplate contemplate ways that artists could contribute to productive conversations and actions in these arenas of natural and human ecosystems that interconnected interdependence that we have and is is fundamental to our our life and our flourishing and so there was a profound sense by all of the participants about the the sacredness of the conversation we were engaged in you know that this was the the fundamental stuff mm-hmm. of, of human being and meaningfulness to human life yeah the big questions um, right exactly so one of the final acts um that the group as a whole engaged in and this was something that just spontaneously arose as a a proposal of what we could do to finish our time together and then disperse you know to our respective lives and quarters of the world to to continue to pursue our calling was to plant a tree and It was a profoundly reverent moment where, you know, the hole was dug after an appropriate site, you know, being selected by, by people who would know we didn't just put it anywhere, you know, that we thought was appropriate, but in a sense, it was truly a kind of act of blessing on the place That we had all, you know, spent two and a half weeks together living and learning and forming a community dealing with profoundly significant kinds of issues, including the role that creatives and artists have to be prophets as well as to quietly, you know, be salt and light you know in the institutions and organizations of society and that by planting a tree that would take 30 years to grow to maturity and then potentially live for a couple of hundred years past that was also a a kind of hope in the promise of a future that I think many people in our time are feeling they need to abandon and is, is having significant ill effects on individuals and societies that if they can't believe that there is a good future for human beings and that there is genuine meaningfulness to the work that they engage in the relationships that they have, and something that transcends the material Mm -hmm. life that they have there, there is, there is a profound hopelessness that, that, that pervades. And so that was fundamentally a kind of act of hope and blessing, you know, um, uh, that, that the group decided was really fitting for all of the, the learnings that we had had
0: yeah, I love the interrelatedness of all of that, the wholeness of all of that. And I think that's been important in our conversation today, too, looking at all these things that might be in some ways seen as disparate, but finding the connectivity between all of these in contemporary society, often. Things that exist in separate silos, contemporary art, the study of religion, environmentalism, cultural traditions. I just love how we're able to get to the heart of the relationship between contemporary art and spirituality and explore the diverse ways these subjects interrelate as well as how they influence the creative process and take shape in relation to culture and community engagement. So, Rachel, thank you so much for being here. This was great.
1: Thank you so much. It was great to talk.
0: Take care. Thanks for listening to Visually Sacred. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, Arthur Agajanian, please visit my website at imageandfaith.com. Dot com. You can also join my Facebook group, Contemplatives and Conversation, and follow me on Twitter at Art Agajanian. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Visually Sacred. Thanks for joining us.